My name is Mike Story, and I appreciate the privilege of you guys coming to spend some time with me this morning. My assignment was to begin a lifetime of making disciples. And let me give you a little backlog. Some of you I've met over the years, and I've seen some. There's a young guy there from Gunnison and some other folks I've met from time to time who aren't so new, and you've heard this before, so just bear with me. Uh, I came to faith in 1971. I was one of those hippie dudes. Uh, I had been raised in the church, but by the time I was 15 years old, I decided that the church was lying to me. So I had to go through all those mind expansion things, um, rebelled. I didn't trust anybody over 30, didn't trust government. Vietnam War was a big deal when I was growing up and uh, hated my government, hated the war, blah, 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 blah. I was just a typical rebel. Uh, But by the end of 1971, I just had this hollow hole in my life. Uh, I shared last night, I, I met my wife, I played in a band and our band played and I saw this really hot little blonde out there and... And I wasn't looking for a meaningful relationship of any kind. And uh, I met her, and on our second date, a Christian band had contacted me to come into Oklahoma City to talk to them about playing bass for their their band, a band called Dove, back in the day. And uh, as I was talking to them about playing in the band, which I really wasn't interested in, it was just a gig, and they noticed that my girlfriend didn't have Jesus. I don't know how they noticed that at that time. And they began to share the gospel with her and led her to Christ in a restaurant called Across the Street in Oklahoma City. And she was converted to faith. Well, that changed our whole dynamic of dating. And uh, a year later, after just bankrupting everything I knew to be my life, uh, I uh, got serious with Jesus Christ in Estes Park, Colorado. I couldn't get a job that summer, summer of 71. All I could do was sell potholders, oven mittens, and five-year light bulbs over the telephone for handicapped workers. Uh, there was no market for long-haired, unmotivated employees. And uh, I couldn't get a job. So I did that, and I realized I wasn't going anywhere fast. So a friend that I had met at Oklahoma Baptist University, I dropped out of school for a little while and lived with a guy over there from Guyana, and uh, I saw this guy street preaching. And I thought something was surely wrong, that you couldn't be that cool looking and be doing this evangelism thing on the streets because cr- that, you just don't equate being sharp looking, evangelism on the streets. That was for losers. That's the, the way I thought. And here's this guy doing street evangelism, and people are mocking him and scorning him and abusing him, really. And so consequently, uh, I thought he was cool guy because he had the courage to stand up for what he believed even though I didn't agree with it I thought he was courageous and I admired that well he had the same problem I had he had a, a great big afro and he couldn't get a job either and I couldn't get a job because my hair was past my shoulders and this is in Oklahoma City in 1971 there wasn't a market for us so we loaded up in my Volkswagen and came to Colorado I knew he was a, an evangelist but I had no idea what a fanatic he was every time we see a hitchhiker and this was the day when that was very common He'd stop and share Jesus with him and give him money. And I remember sitting in my Volkswagen, pulling my hair in front of my face, going, what have I done? What have I got myself into? But he wouldn't go to bed at night until he had led one person to Christ. And so every day he would lead one person to Jesus Christ. And after three and a half days with him, he ran into a buddy of his from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Then there were two of them. I was really outnumbered then. And after another day with them up in Estes Park, Colorado, I just got on my knees and I asked Jesus to do to me what he had done to them. And if he could use me, if there was anything salvageable in my life, I wanted him to take me and use me. And that became the new birth for me, a new beginning. 
But even after a few years, I was into Jesus people and those kind of things. There was kind of a, an emptiness that something was missing. It was like I was a jet plane with great speed in the air, and I was making great headway. I just had no idea where I was going. I knew I was in love with Jesus. I knew he had changed me. I knew I wasn't the same person I had once been, but I didn't understand how or where or the rhyme reason what my life was about. And then as I shared last night, if any of y'all were there, in 76, the state of Colorado sent me to the wrong conference. By this time, I was working in churches because that's what I, I realized in the old business that they uh, didn't appreciate me telling everybody about Jesus and that they didn't like it. And so one day my mother called and said, there's a church looking for a youth pastor. You ought to apply. Well, a cowboy hired me. And I thought, this has got to be God. I mean, I'm a hippie and he's a cowboy and he hired me. And so that started youth work in 1972 and 73 and 74 and 75, moved to Colorado in 76. Uh, I get sent by the state of Colorado to the wrong conference. There I met Max and uh, got a philosophy of living to know, love, and glorify Christ, to raise up qualified disciples in significant numbers to help fulfill the Great Commission as soon as possible, and if married, to leave my family to do the same. Now that's how I've refocused it to fit my life. But that's been a guiding principle for me. But in 1976, this is where our story will begin for us, I was shared with and given a picture of what God wanted to do with my life. I always had presumed that to be called meant you had to be a pastor, and I honestly didn't like pastors, didn't have any use for them. They were God's little dumplings, and I didn't like them. Uh, I thought they were just guys that needed to get a job, and because uh, I, I didn't understand what they did. Uh, I didn't really like church people because I always came to the conclusion conclusion that church people were kind of fake or they were weak or they were needy and of course I didn't get real honest about how weak and how needy and how empty and bankrupt I was personally and uh, I met a guy that told me that you can do this all of your life and this is God's calling on your life this is what God wants you to do with your life and I never heard these kind of things before and so in 1976 I became a disciple a learner, a follower of Christ. In Luke 6.40, the scriptures say, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully taught will be like his master, be like his teacher. And my motive in life now is to be like Jesus. Uh, that is the measure of my growth. Am I Christ-like? Is this the mind of Christ in me? Is this the heart of Christ? Is this an attitude or reflection of Christ? Uh, and so it began that journey. But to do that, I had to learn some disciplines. Uh, Max used to say, desire without discipline equals nothing. You can have all the well-intended ideas you want to, good intentions, but if it's not followed with discipline and action, it means nothing. It's like resolutions that we make every year. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to do this. It means nothing unless you do it. And so in 1976, I sat in this conference in Glorieta, New Mexico, and heard a guy named Max Barnett and a guy named Barry St. Clair and discovered that it didn't matter if I was a youth pastor, if I worked as a roughneck on an oil rig, if it was a truck driver, if I sold insurance, you know, I'm a college graduate, if I'm in whatever I did in life, I could be a disciple who made disciples. My vocation was not as important as the calling of God on my life. And so what I want us to look at is you praying about beginning a lifetime of being a disciple maker. There's some presumptions and assumptions that go with this. We've got some more copies. If you didn't get a copy of what we're going to follow, and I... I want you to understand my, my presentation is very simplistic because there's nothing complicated about anything I'm going to talk about. It's you understanding what God would do in you if you just let Him do it. 
And that's really what it boils down to. Will you come to grips with what God wants to do with you if you just let him do it? And so let's pray together and then we'll kick off in earnest. But again, thanks for sharing this morning with me. Father, I pray that our time is profitable. I pray that you're honored in this time. And I pray that we exalt Jesus. And that when we walk out this morning, we'll have better grips and better handles on what it means to be men and women that Jesus can use. Father, hide me behind your cross. Again, I'm so capable of grieving and quenching what you want to take place. Don't let me do that. And so, Father, be honored. And I pray that you will. I pray that your word will affect us in the way it should affect us, will challenge us in the way we should be challenged, and build us up the way we need to be built. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to understand, and we're going to look at some, these are some observations and then some personal assessments. And we'll give you some Bible verses. In John 15, it says, Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be called my disciples. Well, that was pretty clear speaking to me. I mean, it made sense to me. Here is how you glorify my Father. Here's how you honor God. Here's how you do what's pleasing to God. How do you do that? You do that by making disciples. And again, I know what a disciple is, a learner and a follower of Christ. And in doing that, I'm called a learner myself. A learner does what a learner does, does what the Master did. We know in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, that Jesus said, and he called the twelve that they would be with him. Discipleship is a with-them lifestyle where you're getting people close enough, long enough that they can see Christ in you and begin to imitate the Christ that's in you and become like Christ because of your influence in their life. So it begins with me realizing that I'm called and commissioned not only to be a disciple but to make disciples. That's John 15:8. But another verse that I use is John 15:16. It says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bear forth fruit. That's actually verse 16a, the first part of that verse. And what he's saying is, and this is not in some ism form of Calvinism or something, this is God saying, you're my disciples. You're learning to be like me. If you've been born again, if Jesus Christ has become more than a word to you, if there was a time in your life when Jesus changed you, really changed you. Now, I'm, I, I can't say this heavy enough. You're not born as a Christian. You weren't baptized as a Christian. You don't osmose into being a Christian. You don't morph into being a Christian. You're transformed into the conforming image of Christ through faith. It may take place when you're young. It may take place as a young adult. But there is a time in your life when Jesus changes you. And transformation is key. Now, perfection is not the issue. Only Jesus is perfect and he perfects us. But transformation is what's at the core of salvation. Was there a time when Jesus changed you and began transforming you into his likeness? See, that's the, the question you need to ask yourself. Many times people have gone forward and prayed with a preacher. I remember one time when I was a little boy in Greeley, Colorado. I grew up in an area, went to Hillside Baptist Church. I walked forward and they asked me, do you believe in God? I said, yes, I do. Well, I remember all these women crying over me and praying over me and praising God and hugging me. And then I got dunked. But nothing changed. Even as an eight, I mean, I wasn't even a bad kid, but nothing changed. Because even the demons believe in God. I had not put my faith and trust in the transforming work of Jesus Christ. I didn't understand my sin. I didn't understand what a guy I was and how needy I was for his saving grace and his mercy. And so in 1971, I came to my senses and asked Jesus to do for me what I could not do for myself, and I was changed into his likeness. And that change is a lifetime process. You understand that? 
But it begins with you realizing that God wants you to be a learner and a follower. And His goal for your life is that you become a person that bears fruit. In Matthew chapter 4.19, He's speaking to a bunch of fishermen. And He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a lot of us that say we're following Jesus. How many of you like to fish by chance in here? Anybody like to fish, put a line in the water and have a hog hit it and just kind of make your heart leap up into the throat? And I'm, I'm a pond fisherman. I like to fish with worms. I'm talking about plastic worms for black bass on a pond. I like to cast out among the cattails and have that old hog see it coming in the air and meet it in the air. And then when I get my heart out of my throat and change my pamper, I, I come to grips with I've got a good, good competition going Huh? Do what? Depends now, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I just love that. That's exhilarating. Or catch a striper. I was in Alaska fishing for king salmon. I mean, I love that stuff. I told my wife to feel led to go minister to the king salmon tribe. But she didn't buy that. And so we still live in Colorado. But um, God called us to be fishers of men. If you're following Christ, it's a twofold thing. You bear the fruit of His Spirit, as found in Galatians 5, 22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it's also men and women that, because of your witness, have come to a relationship with Christ. I notice a lot of people who say they're following Christ have empty stringers. Stringers what you put the caught fish on. And metal ones tend to rattle if there's nothing on it. And what I've observed about a lot of Christians who say they're following Christ, they've got a lot of rattling going on. So it begins with you. Am I a disciple? Am I a learner and follower of Christ? Do I understand that God has called me to bear much fruit, a fruit that remains? And the only way it can remain is if it's grounded, if it's rooted and built up. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in Him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, and just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Discipleship is seeing people come to faith in Christ, you being God's hands, His feet, His mouth, His eyes, but God does the salvation part. But you're His vessel that He uses to communicate the love and the truth of God. And then all of a sudden, you take the responsibility to parenting and growing them up in faith. Rob has four children, I have two. And our responsibility was to root them and give them a foundation to make right, wise choices about God, about life, about living, to give them the tools necessary for life. We needed to do the same thing for our babies. But first of all, you've got to understand, that's what God expects of you. How's your quiet time going? How's your prayer life going? How's your witness going? How's your fellowship with godly people who love you so much they're not impressed with you going? How's your financial management going? How's your church life going? On and on, I can ask these things that ought to be just central to everything you are as a Christian. But do you understand God wants to use you? You want to honor God? How many of you want to honor God? Then give your life to making disciples. Chew on John 15, 8 and John 15, 16 and just see what application does that have for you? How do you fit that mold? Being and making disciples has little to do with what I do with my vocation or my location. Now by that I mean this. How many of you have a major in college? What do you plan on doing with that major? This is not a pass-fail class. There's no grade awarded here. Do you, what, what's your major? What do you want to do with that? I have no idea. Get a job. Okay. What's your major? Nursing. What do you want to be? A nurse. All right. All I'm trying to say is you can be a nurse, a marketer. 
You can be an analyst, you can be a, an accountant, you can be a medical doctor, you can be anything you want to be, and still understand I am called to make disciples. It doesn't matter what your job title is. You are called before you get a degree to be a disciple, a learner and follower of Christ, who makes and reproduces Christ. You are called to bear fruit, a fruit that remains. Learners and followers who continue to walk with Christ. Rooted and built up, established in the faith. Vocation is not... And you know you can get a job anywhere. You can get a job in Houston. You can get a job in Topeka. You can get a job in Fort Worth, Texas. You can get one in Denver, Colorado. You can get one in California. You can get one in Alaska with the King Salmon tribe. You can get one wherever you want to go. That's cool. Now, it needs to be bathed in prayer. But all I'm trying to say is you can get a job and live anywhere, but regardless where you are, you need to understand God's called you to do something, to be a disciple who makes disciples. Now, does that make sense to you? You see, we make this big deal about where we're going and how we're going to get there. I have people come to our, my, our fellowship where I pastor, and they want me to pray for them about the job opportunity in another town. And that miffs me sometimes. It miffs me because, number one, many of the times I've observed they've not been hungry to grow as a disciple here. I've noticed that they haven't reproduced Christ here. So why does it matter about serving Christ there? They haven't served Him here. You see... On your campus right now, here's where you begin to lay the foundation for your life. Who are you imparting your life into right now? Who are you investing in? Who are you helping become like Christ? Who are you telling and showing how to have a quiet time, a prayer life? Who are you taking witnessing with you? Who are you helping to learn how to have fellowship with God through Christian church context? Who are you helping become like Jesus right now? It begins where you are right now. You don't need to wait till you graduate. Start now. And then you realize, I'm going to be an accountant. All right, God... Where is a great need? Where is a church I could come alongside and help? Where is a mission point that I could be a valuable tool in making a difference? You see, what God wants you to make sure you're clear on what your calling is. Vocationally, you may be an accountant, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, whatever you choose to be, whatever God allows you to be with giftedness and ability. But your calling is to make disciples. Let me bring it in my context. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for 20-some-odd years. been in church work since 1972. But I am called to make disciples by my giftedness, by my talents. I'm a pastor. But I'm a pastor who, before that call happened in my life, I was called to make disciples. That is the driving passion of my life. I'm a disciple who makes disciples because that's what is natural. And I do it in the context of being a pastor. This is making sense. Are you guys with me? And if anything along the way you need to ask a question, feel free to interrupt because that's more important than what I've got to say. Excuse me. Understand that the call to be and make disciples is just as biblical and theologically sound as the all too often overused idea of call into ministry. Friend, the greatest ministry you'll ever be called into is being a learner who reproduces Christ in other people's lives. That is the highest calling of God. You see, I meet folks, and Rob's an ordained minister. I'm an ordained minister. I don't even really know what that means, except that I was set apart to be a pastor, a minister of the gospel. But I was already set apart. When Jesus Christ changed me, when Jesus Christ came into life, He called me to be a follower of His, to follow Him, to be with Him, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable to His death, was my invitation. It comes from Philippians 3.10. That, that Paul said, this is the drive of my life, that I'll know Him. When you became a Christian, 
God called you to be with Him. When you became a Christian, God called you to know Him. He called you to walk with Him. But He didn't want you to be a stagnant dead sea. He wanted you to be a living sea, a living lake that had overflow. And that's discipling. That's multiplying your life and others. And so you invest in the people that you've won. You're bearing fruit. That's your calling, regardless of what you do. You'll say, well, well, I've never been called. Yes, you have. In fact, I want us to practice something right now. I want you to say the thing. I am called. Now, let's say it like we mean it. I am called to be a disciple of Christ. I am called to be a disciple of Christ who makes disciples who makes disciples. I am called. Now, what are you? That's right. And that's what the Bible says. My story didn't say that. That's what the Bible says. You're called of God. When you get around those pastoral types, those ministry kind of guys, we're called to do that. Now, what's so sad is, I also am a professor in a seminary. And so many of the guys that I work with are good, well-intended fellows and ladies. And I, I praise God for them. But what's sad is, they have this idea that I'm called to do this when I finish. They've never understood that God called them to be something before they do something. And they never understood that before they do all this out there, this lofty, high, and noble stuff like pastor churches or do evangelism tours or be missional overseas, etc., etc., that God wants them to be something who's doing something right now. And we wonder why so many drop out and fall along the way or burn out or never have ministries and they will ask, is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. If you understand, you're called to be a disciple, a learner and follower of Christ who makes disciples. Next. Being and making disciples has nothing to do with your spiritual giftedness, though gifts will affect the way you make disciples. Let me explain that. How many of you are curious about your spiritual gift or know what your spiritual giftedness is? Anybody ever inquired about that? I have gifts. I'm told I have that gift. With pro- you know what that means? I'm a black and white guy. I see sin. I, I, I'm, I'm not the most positive guy in the world. I see gloom and doom before I see hey, let's be happy and be merry. Ha, 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 ha. I'm not a, like, Rob is fun. I'm not. Rob would be like 7-Up. I'm like Alka-Seltzer. And and, pop, pop, fizz, fizz, good for your stomach, but it's hard to drink all the way down. And and that's my personality. That's my gift. I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTJ. If you've ever seen the spiritual temperaments, I'm a choleric. My wife says I'm so choleric, I'm sick. And, And the point is, I know who I am. I know the way I'm wired. But that doesn't mean, well, I don't have the giftedness. I don't have mercy. I don't have the gift of service. Therefore, I can't make disciples. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gift is. It doesn't matter what your personality traits are. It doesn't matter what your personality tendencies are. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like. God says you are called to make disciples. Be a disciple. Make a disciple. That's what God says. Let God be the definitive word on your life. You are called to be a disciple who makes disciples. And in that context, you honor God. In that context, you glorify God. In that context, you please God. Don't ever forget that. That's what God has called you to do. Now, your giftedness may cause you to have a journey. That journey may be in the mission field. That journey may be in a local church. That journey may be in the business world. That journey may be as a homemaker, a a parent. Who knows what the journey will lead to? And your giftedness and your personality plays a great role in how you do discipleship. For example, my gift is 
that of a prophet and probably leadership. Um, I don't have much mercy in my life. And so when I've discipled guys, and they'll come and they'll be talking about how something's hard for them. I just look at them and say, well, just suck it up and deal with it. Now, if you have the gift of mercy, you'll say, we need to pray about that. We need to really be sensitive to this. Which one's right? Neither one. They're both right. You do it in the context of who God has made you and the gift package and the personality God has entrusted to your life. Be true to who you are. Shakespeare is right. To thine own self be true. But you see, your giftedness and your personality traits have nothing to do with your calling. Your calling is to be a disciple who makes disciples. That's what God has called you to do. All right? I'm going to ask you a quiz. This is a quiz. You can flunk this quiz if you want to. Oh, you don't want to flunk it. Who was right, Paul or Barnabas, regarding John Mark? Cowards. I'm not going to say anything. Yes. I choose D. Oh, I'm sorry, there's only three choices. See, I personally believe they both were right. Paul was a driven man. The churches throughout the known world would not have happened had he not been driven. Probably lacked in the areas of compassion and mercy and the sense of a giftedness. Uh, was probably very much a cleric, probably much visionary. Uh, man, he saw the world. Barnabas saw John Mark. Paul saw John Mark the quitter. Barnabas saw John Mark the wounded man that needed to be restored. And we know that they're both right because later when Paul's an old man, we know nothing more about Barnabas, but he says, make sure John Mark comes to me because he's very helpful to me. The same John Mark that Paul walked away from years later is helpful to him again. Why? Because Barnabas did what was true of his life. See, God may call some of you, God may, in the context of discipleship, God may give some of you, God may give you the personality where you work more with more. Like you're able to work with five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys. Maybe you're just compassionate and merciful, and you just get so enthralled in a person's life, you work with one or two, and it just wears you out. We're not in a race here. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul said this, Do you not know in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? They do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. Well, I'm not running aimlessly, I'm not boxing the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it so lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Who is Paul running against? Well, time, yeah. Himself. It's just a race with self. We're not in competition. So let's say your gift is administration, your gift is mercy, and your gift is service. Who's right here? Who's best here? All of you. All of you. Aren't you glad that the body wasn't made up of all eyeballs? We're all one gushy eye. Or running noses. I mean, we're all body parts. I figure I'm little toes. That's about what my part would be. I'm a little toe. But I'm, ba I'm critical for balance. And so the point that I'm getting at is, regardless of your giftedness, you have been called of God to be a disciple who makes disciples. Now, I, you've said that, but you must decide on that if that's true of you. And then you recognize, this is who I am. This is my gift mix. This is my personality type. This is the way God has wired me. So in the context of your skin, you do what God's called you to do. Make disciples. You're not competing with someone else. You're not comparing. So what that this person spends a lot more time dealing with wounds or whinings or pains, and this person just tells them to suck it up and get on with life. The bottom line is we're trying to invest our lives in people to help them become like Christ. Does that make sense? Any questions at this point? 
Is this clear like mud? Okay. Being and making disciples has little to do with your personality type, though this will influence how you one does discipleship, which was talking about already your personality. For example, how many of you are loners? You like alone time. How many of you get a charge out of being around people? All right. For example, my buddy Rob back here. Rob gets around an audience and he gets energized. I get energized from an audience I like. If I don't like the audience, it just starts deflating me. Uh, I have to have alone time. I have to have time to read. I have to have time. You know what my favorite pastime in life is besides fishing? Splitting firewood. Because it's just, you know, I'm a preacher type. I don't get to do things like that. So I like getting my axe and my malls out there and just beside my house. My wife says it's an embarrassment to the neighborhood. I mean, it's just, ton, you know, 17 years of splitting wood. And that's what I do because it's just good for me to do it. And I'll have people say, can I come over and help you? And, and my discipling nature says, yes, you can come over because it's good time with someone. But I, inside my personality is going, no, we don't want you. Stay away. Don't come. Now, I'm not an anal retentive, so I don't have, I don't, I'm not a perfectionist by any means. I'm a big picture guy. But I know who I am. Know who you are. And in the context of who you are, make disciples. But make sure you're not trying to reproduce your personality. For example, if you're an introvert, don't just work with introverts and don't try to make everybody an introvert. If you're an extrovert, don't try to just work with extroverts and make everybody an extrovert. Understand who you're working with, their tendencies, and in the context of who God's made them, help them to get the tools and the disciplines necessary to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be made like Him, a learner and follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. These are just observations, by the way. Being and making a disciple has little to do with one's age, education, your culture, your nationality, your ethnicity. It transcends all of these supposed issues. Well, I wasn't raised that way. Neither was I. I'm from Oklahoma and Colorado. Tough. I'm from Kansas. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, regardless of what you may say or do or where you're from and what you are, it doesn't matter. Who was Jesus speaking to when he said, here is how my Father is glorified by you making disciples by you bearing fruit and that proves you're my disciples. All right? Who is he speaking to? Us today, absolutely. Who then? A bunch of guys from Galilee. How many of you are Jews in the historical context of the meaning of the word Jew? Anybody Jews in here? So I guess it has no relevance for us, does it? I was with Addy at a bio. I can't pronounce his first name, so we just call him Addy. Addy at a bio in uh, Mina, Nigeria. He's Nigerian, and yet he's making disciples. So it's, it's not about ethnicity. It's not about people groups. Well, I'm poor. I, as a poor person, I can't make disciples. Well, I'm wealthy. I'm too busy. I have to overlook the family stocks. You see, all I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from or where you've come from, what roots you have in life. God has called you to be a disciple who makes disciples. That is God's calling on your life. That is His handprint in your life. Does that make sense? Because I have people... Right now, I'm discipling three men that are over 60. One guy that just got his GED, a Hispanic dude who works for a minimum security prison. And another guy who's from Nigeria named Yimmy. 
Now, you know why Yimmy wants to learn? I'm taking him through a tool called Master Life. It's just a tool I know. It's not because it's the best tool. It's just a tool I know. I'm taking him through this process. You know what he wants to do with it? Take it to Nigeria. Not to reproduce Master Life, but reproduce the principles of discipleship. So I'm discipling Yimmy. I've got three guys in their 60s that I'm discipling. I love them, man. They're my, I, I was hoping they would come this week. One's in California. One is home very sick. The other's got family. Hopefully they'll come tomorrow night to hear Harold Bullock. But the bottom line is, I invest in these guys, and Gavin has to work. Gavin's my Hispanic, Hispanic brother. So I've got an African, I've got a Hispanic, and three Anglos. We're from all different backgrounds. Some are blue-collar, one is white-collar. It doesn't matter. None of us were rich except one of them. So we got wealthy, we got poor, we got bottom of the line, we got me, we got us all. What I want you to understand, there are no excuses for not. The disciples represent a cross-section of the people groups from which Jesus lived and walked, from financially stable like Matthew to the poor fishermen like Peter, James, and John. Hard-working guys, blue-collar to white-collar professional. But the bottom line is, don't make excuses I had a friend that's a dear friend of mine, wouldn't go into prisons, wouldn't do prison ministry. I've done prison ministries for about 30 years. I've never been in prison in my life. I was in a drunk tank once. Got out of there pretty quick when I came to my right mind. Decided I don't want to spend a lot of time in those places. Grew up real quick. But he wouldn't go to prisons. You know why he wouldn't go to prisons? Because he had a college degree. And he said, there's no point I would relate to these people. I have a college degree. And he's saying that to me. Now, I have three degrees. Degrees mean nothing if they keep you from doing what God's called you to do. Degrees mean nothing except you've erected a wall if it keeps you, it gives you an excuse from obedience. All I'm trying to say, there are no walls, there are no excuses, there are no reasons that we may commonly grab hold of that keep you from being a disciple who makes a disciple. The only thing that can keep you from being a disciple is who? Yourself. Will you accept the call of discipleship? Will you accept the call, what that means? And let me put it in another thing parenthetically. There are a lot of people who want to be disciples, but they don't want to do the next logical step. My wife and I got married 35 years ago. We dated for two years, so we've been, we have grown up together. We've been together 37 years. That's a little while. I believe that's older than most of you. Now, one of the natural things we wanted to do, if we were biologically able to do it, was what? Once we got married. Have kids. That's normal. It ought to be just as normal for a Christian who is born again, who's now bound with Christ, to want to bear the fruit of a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit and the souls of men that would catch fishing in the ponds of life. Just natural. Being a disciple makes little difference what you do with you regarding age, education, culture, nationality, ethnicity. It transcends all the supposed issues and walls. Then there's my old friend John Crawford. Any of you know who John Crawford is when I say that? John Crawford is the oldest living navigator in the United States. He's in his early 90s now. I've been blessed. I am the product of a tributary of life. I'm I'm a creek. And into my creek, rivers have overflowed. Max Barnett, Gene Moore, Jim White, uh, Skip Gray, uh, Leroy Imes, Jim Peterson, John Crawford. These guys have influenced my life so greatly. So influential in who I am as a man, how I think and how I live. Some of them are my mentors through their books and through tapes and through CDs and through conferences I went to. Some, like Max, have just invested in my life. Max has kind of adopted me and I'm in his debt. I really believe this. 
If Max comes to town, I will stop what I'm doing and give him my time. Because he's, in, he's given me so much I can never repay it. And I was thinking about it. Max and his wife Sandra and my wife Dee went to the Southern Baptist Convention of Colorado back in Steamboat this last year. We were coming back in a snowstorm. And I was thinking about how blessed I am for all the time I've spent with Max. And I thought of something John Crawford said about the same thing. John Crawford used to be very upset with Dawson Trotman because Dawson Trotman wouldn't free him, send him out. Always kept him close to him. Always kept him at the castle on the grounds. And if you've ever been to the Navigator headquarters in Colorado Springs, the castle and some of the buildings there, John Crawford constructed and, and remodeled and beautified. John did all that because of his skills as a bricklayer and a carpenter and a construction manager. And he resented it. Then Dawes died in 1958. And many years later, John Crawford realized, I've probably spent more time with Dawson Trotman than any other living human being. And all those times I just wanted to get out and be on my own, I was blessed to be with him. So I was thinking about that. We're coming back from Steamboat. And I really believe this. I have probably spent more time with Max Barnett than any other pastor on the planet. And I thought, what an honor. He has shared his life. When they come to Colorado, they stay with me. Me. They sleep in my basement. They eat with me. They bless me. And so, man, I, I, someday I'll just be so rich to tell my kids about this great man, my great-grandkids, tell them about this great man that I got to spend a lot of time with and traveling and cars and conferences in their home and their home. What a blessing it has been. See, discipleship, as old John Crawford, that was a long-term explanation for who he is, says you can make disciples your whole life even if you never figure out what you're supposed to do with your life vocationally. Let me put that in perspective. How many of you are undeclared in college? How many of you have declared, that means your major, you haven't declared a major. How many have declared a major but really don't know what that means? For example, I was a philosophy major in college. What in the world does that mean? Nothing. You cannot get a job with a philosophy degree. I promise you that unless you go back and get a PhD and teach philosophy at a university. Woo, isn't that fun? And, And so I had a degree, but I really didn't know what I was supposed to do. Does that make sense? I presumed I'd work in the oil fields because that's what my dad did. That's what I knew. I'd done that off and on, except the year my hair was too long, they wouldn't hire me. I, I presumed some things. And all John is saying, he's so right on, is this. It doesn't matter if you never figure it out. You can make disciples your whole life. And John, in a video, have any of you seen the discipleship video? A friend of mine, Doug Cyphers, and I, and a few of us put that together about ten years ago, and Doug Cyphers is the guy videotaping here with the Navs. And, and Doug and I traveled around the United States filming these guys. I was the interviewer, and it was just a blessing to be with these men. John Crawford rubs his old head. He said he's laying there at Muir Lake in downtown Oakland, California. And Dawson Trotman looks at him. The war has just come to an end. World War II has just come to an end. And he points at John Crawford, and he says, John, you know, if you never figure out what you're supposed to do with your life, you can give your whole life to making disciples. John laughs, he's bald-headed, and rubs his old bald head, and he said, Well, I've never figured out what I'm supposed to do with my life, so I've given my whole life to making disciples. Folks, that is a life well invested. That is a life well spent. He's given his whole life making disciples. You may sell insurance, you may sell cars, you may be a builder, you may be a broker, you may be an accountant, you may be a doctor, you may be a nurse, you may be a marketer. I don't care what you are. 
If you never figure that out, that's less important to God than you figure out who you are in Christ and that He has called you to be a disciple who makes disciples. In 1976, I'm sitting in a conference just like this, and it dawned on me, I'm to be a disciple. I'm to be a, a learner like Christ. I'm to be Jesus in somebody's world, helping them intentionally and deliberately to become like Christ. And I can do that as a youth pastor. I can do that if I sell insurance, if I do seminars. I can do that regardless where I go, whatever I do, wherever I am. I can do that. So, gang, if you never figure out what you're supposed to do with your degree, it really is less important than figuring out you're supposed to be a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ who makes disciples like Christ. Isn't that relieving? Isn't that freeing? I mean, do you know God is a lot less concerned about how much money you make than He is about how many disciples you make? Being and making disciples is well suited for the marketplace environment. And that discipleship does not require a program, a designated facility, especially it is especially fitted for this purpose. You don't have to have a program or a building or you know you know how where you can make disciples? In a coffee shop like Starbucks. You can make disciples at a restaurant over lunch. You can make disciples in the, the conference room at your office when you take your sack lunch and just meet with a couple gals or a couple guys. You can make disciples in the marketplace during your break. You can take someone out for dinner on a business and a business associate traveling with your training, but you're not just training them for the business, you're training them to reproduce Christ in other people's lives. The marketplace is well suited for discipleship. Where did Jesus, what church was Jesus on staff with? None. Where did he disciple the guys that were with him? Everywhere. Come with me. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We see over in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 and following. It was wherever they were. The Sermon on the Mount was on the hillside. One of his great sermons was when he came walking across the water on the Sea of Galilee, when they were freaking out. And then he said, peace be still, the storm calmed instantly. See, his platform for teaching was wherever he was. And all I want you to grasp is this. I meet people who will say to me, oh, Mike, I, I believe I'm supposed to make disciples, but you know, I just don't have time. You know, I work. I say, don't you take a coffee break? Well, yeah. Don't you take a lunch break? Well, yeah. There's your platform. You're telling me in your office there's no conference rooms, there's no space, there's no restaurants. You can do it anywhere. John Crawford spends most of his time in McDonald's. Man, I've never thought about making disciples in McDonald's. That would be a deterrent to me. Now, Starbucks, that's a different matter. But the point I'm getting is the marketplace is well suited because the master discipler, Jesus, modeled the marketplace. Not the local church context. Rob and I are at a disadvantage. We work in the context of the church building. The hallowed facilities of God. Where the righteous work of the righteous God that we serve is carried out. Amen and amen. But the problem is, that's not what it was intended to be. Discipleship as modeled by Jesus was out there. Not in here. Like Max says, the Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We've got it. Y'all come and we'll make disciples of all nations. We reverse the order to go ye into all the nations, to all the people groups, to all the tribes. My friend Addie from Mina, Nigeria, 
he just went to villages. And he would not go to any villages where a church existed. Now, what I call villages, believe me, they're not villages like you would have in mind. They're just barely there. But people come from everywhere. And he began to pray that God would give him one person. And that one person would take him to another person. They would lead. And all of a sudden they'd have four or five or six or seven. And then they would begin a church. And he'd be the first pastor of that church. Because they just have a church. Because that's what the body of Christ does. And, but what he's doing is investing his life for extended periods of time. Telling them the stories of the Bible. And they memorize these things. And so he's discipling them to have the character and the heart of Christ. And what, what do they do? They do what Addie did to them. And then Addie comes back about a month later, and there's double the numbers. Why? Because they did what Addie did to them, and they did it to those people, and those people are doing it to those people. 2 Timothy 2.2 2. The things you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. Four generations in one little verse. Timothy, what you've heard from me, two generations. Entrust to faithful men, fourth generations, who will be able to teach others also, fourth generation. And it doesn't stop there. That's just the model of the dynamic of reproduction. Discipleship. Discipleship. Being and making disciples fits into one's reality easily. How many of you live in an apartment? Okay. How many of you live in a dorm? How many of you live in a house? All right. We all have roofs over our head. There is some place in that place, that space, where you could meet someone to help them grow to be like Jesus. There are no reasons you can't do that. I had an old friend named Coach Dan Stavely. Dan Stavely coached for over 25 years at the University of Colorado during their heydays and their bad days. He was just the freshman coach when there used to be freshman football teams. Dan got crippled later in life. He had had a hip replacement, got a staph infection on the bone, and was just pretty well crippled up. But Dan used to go to the University of Northern Colorado, and he would go into the student center there, and he would just sit down. And he would meet eight students... And one day, an hour each, in his 80s, they'd review verses, they'd pray together and do a short Bible study. How's your life doing? How's your walk? Any struggles going on? Anything I can pray for you about? How can I help you? Okay, here's what the Word of God says. And he would begin to help them. Then he'd have have to have someone drive. He couldn't even drive. It's painful to watch him walk. And then he'd go to Colorado State and do the same thing. And he'd go to Colorado University and do the same thing. Just sit in the student center and he was discipling over 24 people at one time, a crippled man in his 80s. All he wanted to impart to these students was to learn to do the basics well. And he'd say, any good football coach will tell you the key to a winning season is doing the basics well. Doing the basics well. And he said, I have given my whole life to not just teaching football basics, but spiritual basics, because that's all that lasts for life. Doing the basics well. It will fit your reality. Will you be a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. Any questions at this point? Any thoughts? Is this making sense at all? Now, I want to ask you a question. This is going to be kind of personal. How many of you really believe you're called to make disciples? Do you really believe that? Or are you just doing it because I told you to say that? You see, you are. Every one of us can be a learner and follower of Christ. Can I tell you what God's will is for your life? Do you want to know what God's will ultimately is for you? Romans 8, 29. Now, a lot of those groups in the Christian context that have isms at the end of the, the word make this more than what it ought to be. But here's what Paul was saying. Those he did foreknow, he did predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's will for you is to be like Jesus. Why not do what Jesus did? 
Who do we think we are that we don't need to imitate the Master? Who do we think we are that we don't have to do what Jesus did? If Jesus did this and it changed the whole world, why do we think some man-conceived program is going to do it better? Why do we think that some strategy that we come up with in our own thinking is more important than what Jesus said? you know what the weakness of the local church is? A lack of discipleship. We've never done it. You know what the weakness of most mission organizations is? A lack of discipleship. We've never done it. Now, I want to say this before I move into the personal assessment time. Discipleship is messy. Just is. What's your name? Doug? Cody. Good name. Good Wyoming name. And you're from Kansas. That's good, though. It's a good Kansas name. You are from Kansas, right? Okay. Let's say I start working with Cody. And Cody and I are working. We meet a couple hours every week, and we're memorizing verses. But all of a sudden, Cody gets a girlfriend, and Cody bails on me. Was my time in him wasted? No, because hopefully he'll come to his senses down the road. But he may never be the man that God wanted him to be because he made a decision, right, that short-circuited the process. Does that mean it doesn't work? Does that mean the process is flawed? No, it just means that we have choices and sometimes we may make bad ones. What's your name? But I start working with Stephen at the same time. And oh, Stephen, man, he just takes it hook, line, and sinker. He swallows the whole plastic worm. And I mean, I'm trying to restrain the fanatic, not just help him. I mean, this man is on fire. And I meet with him for two and a half, three years. And at the same time, he's working with other guys. And they're working with other guys. See, that's what discipleship is. You don't get discouraged, even though sometimes a guy bails on you, a gal will bail on you. You don't get discouraged. And it breaks your heart. You know why it breaks your heart? Because you love them. It breaks your heart because you're investing in them. It breaks your heart because you care about them. And you want God's best for them. And it's not a control manipulation thing. It's God's best thing. You want them to be a learner and follower, to be like Christ. You want them to see Christ in you. Paul says in Philippians 4.9, the things you have both learned and received and seen and heard of me do, and the God of peace will be with you. Discipleship is you. Walking Christ, modeling Christ, showing Christ, so others can do what you do and have the peace of Christ because they do what you do. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, teen, be imitators of me, also as I also am of Christ Jesus. Imitation isn't making clones. It's what a disciple does. The pattern, where does it, where's the original mold? In the scripture. And the model that we're trying to emulate and imitate is Jesus. I'm less concerned about what school of theology a person aligns himself with than I am will they align themselves with the person of Jesus and be transformed into his likeness and be conformed into his image. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and remembered they were common and educated men, they marveled. And then they remembered they had been with Jesus. The ultimate compliment of discipleship. People will remember we've been with Jesus. The navigators have an old poem that says this, you're writing the gospel a chapter each day, but the things that you do and the words that you say, people read what you write, distorted or true, what is the gospel according to you? That's discipleship. You're modeling Jesus. You're modeling the good news. You're modeling the word of God. How, do you, how can you tell that the Bible is important to me? What would be a guess? Huh? I know it. I memorize it. I spend time in it every morning. I pray over it. I pray about it coming down here because I just want to make sense because sometimes I think I'm incoherent half the time. I, I, I just want it to be relevant for you guys as it was for me.
I would, I would pray for you that what happened to me would happen to you a hundred times over. I would wish my life on you if I could, but I can't. But I can pray that you understand your call to be a disciple who makes disciples. What time is it? 11.30, so we got a little time left, right? we got personal assessment time. That was observations about begin a lifetime of making disciples. Has this made sense? The most important person in discipleship is you. That's where the ball starts rolling. If you don't understand how important you are, if you don't grasp that you have been called to be a disciple, it's more important than where you work, what job you take, what city you live in, you are called to make disciples. If you don't understand that, it will never catch on in your heart. And you will waste years of your life. Personal assessment. Do you consider yourself a disciple, a true learner and follower of Christ? Do you? If I hung out with you for a week, would I make that same assessment? If I ran around with you, met the people you meet. See, I've met a lot of people that say they, 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 they're all about Jesus. And I listen to them. I don't know what they're about. But it's not Jesus. They quote everything but His Word. They don't know any scriptures. They don't know anything about Him in a fresh, meaningful way. If I followed you, would I remember Him because of you? Next question. Do you understand that it is God's will for you to do what Jesus did? To imitate what He did with the twelve and they in turn did with those entrusted to them? In John chapter 13, verse 15 and 17, it says this. For I have given to you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, a servant is not greater than his master, neither is the one sent greater than him, him who sent him. Blessed are you if you know these things and do them. Now, in John chapter 13, what had Jesus just done? Do you have any idea? He just washed their feet. The last thing that Jesus did... Before anything, before he was arrested, before he was betrayed by Judas, he got on his knees and he bent down. And I do, but it'd take me too long to get back up. He bent down and he washed the disciples' feet. Unheard of. The servant is washed feet, not the master. But you see, in Christ's context, being a master means you're the head servant. In Matthew chapter 23, 11 through 12, it says this. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm. You want to do what Jesus did? Then be a servant. Be a servant. Be a servant. Be a servant. Whose feet are you washing? Who are you serving? I worked with a young man many years ago named Tom Boyd. Tom is a businessman in San Diego, California. Very successful. Gifted and talented beyond my abilities. An incredibly godly man. Gifted. And I met with him for about three years. He was a student at William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. And I was a seminary student at Midwestern Seminary. It was a cemetery. You didn't catch that. It's a little slow, a little early in the morning. That's okay. We'll do it. And um, I didn't know that Tom had a girlfriend. I never knew. Because I didn't deal with that stuff. I didn't get to that. And later Tom came and said, Mike, I'm just so grateful you didn't get on me. You didn't ride me. You just encouraged me. And I said, God kept it from me or I would have wiped you out, man. Because I would have been insensitive and callous. So I helped him. We did studies on purity of life and holiness of life. We did studies on being morally upright and righteous in all your ways. For he who is holy has called you. Therefore, you be holy in all your ways. 
as First Peter tells us. And he had memorized those verses, and the Holy Spirit began to work on him. The Holy Spirit began to chisel these things, and he began to make choices for God's sake. Now, I was the vessel that God was using, but a lot of it was not because of my intentionality. It was because I didn't know things, and it was a good thing. But discipleship, what I wanted him to understand was this. Discipleship was me investing in Tom's life. To help Tom become like Jesus. Not to be like Mike's story. Now, there'd be some things that we had in common. We had quiet times. We memorized verses. We shared our faith. We did those things together. He learned those things from me. And then Tom would take it. And I'm leading the Bible study at the K fraternity house that Tom's an officer in. That's where all the jocks lived. And then one night, after about three years, Tom calls me. He says, Story, are you coming up tonight? And I'd always come up after church. I would get up there at 9 o'clock at night on Wednesday nights. Drive from Independence, Missouri to Liberty, Missouri. And I'd get there late. He'd say, Story, if you don't mind, we'll just take it from here. And all of a sudden, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Athletes was born out of that Bible study. But once I got out of the way, it went from 12 to about 200. See, Tom could use his gifts and his ability and his personality. But you know what Tom did? He began to disciple some guys. There's a guy that used to go to first uh, Thornton, a church in Thornton, Colorado, North Metro, called Vic Duvault. Vic Duvault was an all-American running back from Missouri who transferred to William Jewell College because of coaching, ch- coaching changes. Tom Boyd led him to Christ. Tom Boyd invested in Vic Duvault, just like I invested in Tom Boyd. Now, Vic Duvault walks with God in a mighty way today and does the same thing to others. Where does that come from? It is multiplication, investing in your life and someone else who will turn to it in others. That's what it is. So here's the question. Do you understand that it's God's will for you to do what Jesus did? To imitate what he did with the twelve. To serve them, to love them, to teach them, to pray for them. In Luke 11, 1, it says that after he had prayed, the disciples asked him, Jesus, or Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Why would they ask him to teach to pray? Because they saw him pray all the time. They wanted to do what he did. Discipling is when you're getting someone doing what you're doing. Helping them get a start. Now, you have areas of inadequacy, don't you? Got any weaknesses? Ask God to give you victory over your weaknesses. But don't let that stop you from reproducing your strengths. Does that make sense? All right, I could ask the guys in here, how many of you have a lust problem? And if we weren't on video, all of you who aren't lying would lift your hands. That does not negate you from being a disciple maker. It just allows you to be vulnerable with your disciple to have them praying for your lust problem. You can still help them have a quiet time, can't you? You can still teach them how to pray and pray for problems and pray to be dependent upon Jesus. You can still share. See, what I'm saying is this. You're not going to ever be perfect at this. But don't let your faults cripple you. Paul looked at John Mark who had been crippled by cowardness or he just wanted to go home. Maybe he was just homesick. And Paul had no use for him. But Barnabas saw value. Don't let it cripple you. Get it over it. Get healed from it. Get well over it. Get victory over it. But don't let it cause you to stumble and not be in the battle. Be a disciple who lives a life worthy of imitation. Do you understand that discipleship is as much caught as it is taught? Now, I was kidding you earlier. I have a lot of fun in life. I enjoy life. I have fun. And a lot of my best times with the guys I've discipled isn't over a notebook or a Bible study. It's just talking about life. It's just being on a road together, doing mission trips together. Uh, just doing speaking engagements together, just going out to Starbucks together, just hanging time. Now, if hanging time is all you do, you're lazy. 
You're cutting corners. There has to be the discipline time, the Bible study time. There has to be the intentionality part of it. But it's almost as much caught. You know, the greatest thing, you know why people who hang around me do evangelism? Because I do. Do you know why people have quiet times who hang around me? Because I have them. My son, Josh, I don't know if any, he's the one who's designed those really cool shirts that are on sale up there. There's six left. You got to go buy them. Uh, Josh woke up every morning to see his dad having a quiet time. Every morning he would come down the stairs and he'd see his dad and mom having quiet times. Twice a week he'd see his dad in Bible study with a group of fellows that I was discipling at six in the morning. So when Josh came down for breakfast, getting prepared for school, dad would be in the other room with his fellows. That's what he grew up with. That's what he saw. What do you think he does now? He disciples guys. You know how he does it? Just like he saw me do. He imitates. Now, you're going to imitate one way or the other, good or bad, but you will be imitated. And as a parent, I will promise you, I have a quick fuse, not a vile fuse, but a quick fuse, and I can get frustrated. If if things aren't going like I want them to, I can get real frustrated, especially when I was a little younger than I am now. And so the worst part of my frustration was at the point of vacations. I like to leave about 5 in the morning. If I can leave earlier, that's even better, like 4 in the morning. That way I'd be at my destination. I could plot out I'll be in Burlington for breakfast. I'll be in Salina for lunch. I can be there by 4. I like to think that way. Well, my wife is different than me. Her idea is we're on vacation. We don't have to get up early. We don't have to leave. We're on vacation. Well, I'd get up at 4. Load the car, slam indoors, fuming around going, man, no one ever does what I want. I was. Well, my oldest son, who's 31, will be 32 next month, lives in Broken Arrow. He brought a bunch of friends up from Broken Arrow one time, and he wanted to leave at 4 in the morning. I watched him out. All of his buddies are in bed. He's up. I'm up. He wants to leave. I'm all for that. But I watched what I reproduced in him, my frustrations, my short fuse, and I saw how I reproduced. Be careful what you reproduce. Be careful. But you know what? Even when you fail in those you're investing in, it's a great learning opportunity. Because you can go and you can say, Hey, you know, Cody, you saw me lose my cool the other day, and I want you to forgive me for that. Would you pray for me that that doesn't happen again? And if you see that happening, would you point it out to me? Because it's a blind spot with me, Cody. I don't even know I'm doing it sometimes. So would you help me? Do you understand what a valuable tool that is? Because you're not supposed to be super Christians. You're supposed to be real Christians when you're discipling someone. You're supposed to be legitimately modeling Christ. And if you're super Christian, you can't help somebody because they can't relate to you. Is this making sense? Live a life worthy of imitation. Again, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Philippians 3.17. Be followers together of me and mark them that so walk so that you have us as an example. Philippians 4.9. Things you have both learned and received and seen and heard in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. On and on. Hebrews 6, 12 and other verses that tell you to imitate, to do what I do. Do you believe that you can be your, this can be your life calling? Can it be your life passion? Uh, I meet guys that are passionate about church planting. I was at a conference in Missouri earlier this year speaking, and this guy got up and he's a church planner. He's talking about how cool it is to set up your equipment every week. How cool it is that they meet in a high school. How cool it is. Well, I did that for 11 years. And friend, it ain't cool. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's tough work. And this guy's talking, this is far out, man. This is cool. We got all this. We got this. We got this. Well, maybe his economy was different than mine because I had to do it with a few people that helped me every week. It wasn't cool. It was hard. 
And I just wonder, he's passionate about that. What else is he passionate about? What are you passionate about? I used to be passionate about Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, the Birds, Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck. I was passionate about those guys. I want to be passionate about something that's eternal in nature. I want to be passionate, not about where I work. I don't. I want to be committed to where I work. I want to be passionate, not about my car. I like my my truck, but I want to be passionate about something that's eternal. Making disciples is eternal. It will outlive and outlast you if you do it. That's your calling. Do you believe? Something as simple and yet demanding as discipleship could be your ministry for life. Could you see yourself doing this for all your life? I figure the day will come I won't be a pastor anymore. I actually look forward to that day. Because I'm a general practitioner. I do counseling. I do marriages. I do funerals. I help them when they're whining. I help them when they're feeling good. I preach. I do all these kind of things. Those things aren't my passion. My passion is watching some guy get God's Word in his life, learn how to pray effectively, and all of a sudden the light comes on, and he realizes, I can do this! And begins to do it in other people's lives. Man, that pumps me up. Man, that thrills me. Man, that floats my boat. Can you see yourself doing this all your life? As long as you have breath... Coach Stavely did it till the day he died. He's on the adult men's version of the discipleship, pass it on videotape. He died shortly after we videotaped him. Lauren Sani was the president of the Navigators. He died shortly after we videotaped it. Leroy Imes was ill and couldn't be on the videotape. Some other guys that we videotaped have died and gone on. But they were making disciples until their bodies shut down. Making disciples till the end. Man, what a way to go out. Your calling is a lifelong calling. doesn't matter what you do for a living. doesn't matter where you live. Wherever you are, make disciples because you're a disciple. Do you understand that all you have to be is a step ahead to show someone else where to walk? Hungry to learn how to help feed someone else and dependent upon Jesus, the author and finisher of all of our faith. That's all you have to be. Will you commit to being a lifelong learner and pull as many people with you as you can? Some of you will be more effective than others, but it doesn't matter. You're not racing against everybody else. This race is your race. And you'll stand before God someday, and there'll be Bob over here, and Sally over here, and Susie over here, and John over here. You know why they're over here? Because you took the time to invest in their life. Because you took your calling of God seriously. And you realize that before anything else, you are called to be a disciple who makes disciples. And that's the end of your life. That is the purpose of your life. That is the reason for your life. All these other things are periphery. No matter how much importance you put on them, they're periphery. And it starts where you are right now. When I caught this vision of being a disciple who makes disciples for my whole life, I went back in 1976 to Greeley, Colorado. I was the volunteer BSU director at UNC, you know, the college then. And I went back and I uh, began taking my hungry students. I said, God, give me the hungry ones. And so I didn't know I was not supposed to work with girls, so I took five girls at one time because they were the hungriest. Poor, began to pour my life into five girls. In the afternoons, my home and my wife was there. D helped me. But see, my wife hadn't even been discipled. I began to win some guys to Christ and invest in them. And the head of Campus Crusade on our campus had an assistant named John Wall. And John Wall and I became best buddies. We'd do evangelism together. And it was ironic. We were the volunteer BSU on our, in our state. We were, I was one of the few. We were the largest BSU in the state in 1976. And I was a volunteer. 
You know what happened? Because I took the time to invest in students. You know why I took the time? Because I caught a vision. This is what God's called me to do. I don't know about being a preacher. I don't know about being a youth director. I don't know about all that stuff. I like doing all those kind of things. But I know one thing. I'm called to make a disciple. 1977, my wife and I felt we should go to seminary. So we went to Midwestern Seminary out in Kansas City, Missouri. I went to the placement office and I sat down with this godly old man and he said, what has God called you to do? And I looked at him with a clear heart and conscience and said, make disciples. And he said, no, no, young man. What has God called you to do in ministry? And I said, I don't know about any of that stuff. I do know I'm called to make disciples. And he said, young man, our school is here for the purpose of helping those who are called into ministry to refine their gifts and their talents in that ministry. And I said, I understand that. I'm called into the ministry to make disciples. And he said, no, 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 sir. We're talking about called into the pastorate, called into student directoring. Education director, music director, that's what they used to call them years ago. And I said, I don't know about any of that stuff, and I don't even think half those guys are called. But I said, I do know I'm called to make disciples. He said, why are you here? And I said, I told him this, I'm here to make disciples on this campus. Because I found a lot of preacher boys who did not have daily quiet times, who had never introduced anybody to Jesus Christ, who did not know how to memorize the scripture, who never had prayed effectively, didn't know how to intercede. And so I began meeting with four guys on the campus. Then God brought me Tom Boyd and the guys at the K Fraternity House at William Jewell College. You see, if you will say, God, I understand my calling is to be a disciple who makes disciples. And you purpose in your heart, this is what I will do for my life, regardless of where I live or what I do for a living. God will use you up. God will use you up if you let him. But you have to understand, this is your calling. Walk in it. It's what God has equipped you to do, called you to do. Will you do it? You may be a pastor, praise God. You may be a missionary, praise God. You may be a chaplain, praise God. You may be a doctor, a nurse, an architect, a lawyer, an RN. You may be an accountant. I don't know what you'll be. But regardless of what you do for income, be a disciple whose calling in life is to be that and make disciples. What questions do you have before we call this a day? Has this made sense? What is our time right now? 11.52. What I want you to do is take the hand of the person next to you. We're going to do a, a warm, fuzzy thing. We're going to do one of those touchy-feely things. And you can even stretch across the aisle if you want to there. And I want you just to have a silent few minutes of praying for the person. You don't know the people on the right and left, perhaps. But I just want you to pray quietly for them. I want you to pray that that person will be a disciple who makes disciples. And that that person will be a person who makes disciples. Pray for the person in front of you if you don't have someone next to you. Just pray for them. That way you're getting whammied. And then after about a season, I'm going to pray for you. Because what I want you to do is understand, when you walk out of this room, I am called to be a disciple. I am called to make disciples for my whole life. Regardless of what I do, where I do it at, I am a disciple who is called to make disciples. And if you will be clear at that point, you'll never get over it. You'll never get over it. And it will be the passion of your soul. And then I want to pray for you. So take a few minutes to pray for one another right now, quietly, for each other. And I'll pray for you. And pray for yourself also that you understand your calling to be a disciple and begin a lifetime of discipleship.
Father, we sing a little praise song many years ago that said, In my life, Lord, be glorified. Well, you've told us how to do that by being fruitful, by making disciples. And my prayer for every man and woman in this place this morning is that they will glorify your name by first and foremost understanding they are called to be disciples. And you have given to them the ministry. You've entrusted to them the ministry of discipleship. That is their calling in life. They may do other things, and we rejoice in that. They may be in mission fields. They may be in business worlds or marketplaces around the world. But regardless of where they are, they have been called to be learners and followers of Jesus. To be Jesus in somebody's world. To be light in someone's darkness. God, may they give their whole heart, their whole life, their whole mind, their whole will, their whole emotion to that end of being and making disciples. God, help them to be found faithful. Help them to understand you will use them until there's nothing left to use for your glory and your namesake. Help them to always run with diligence, to discipline their lives, to be found faithful. And I pray this for them in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. My phone. Thank you, gang. If you have any questions, I'll hang around for a second.